This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. As movies seemingly get bigger and bigger, there's also a danger they get further and further away from reality. Instead of upping the wow factor, there's a strong chance that the films will simply increase the ho-hum factor instead. If movies can do anything these days, then what can they offer that you weren't expecting? Well, this is the job of the computer boffins of the movie Digital Effects Houses, and one of the two or three major firms in the world is located in Miramar, Wellington, New Zealand. Weta Digital. Mankind mobilised. A new age arose. The age of the great predator cities. Survival of the fastest. Weta Digital was originally founded to support Peter Jackson's productions, in particular the Lord of the Rings films. Those films were famously dripping with wow factor. They won several Oscars for it. Though, interestingly, the biggest impact wasn't the battle scenes with casts of digital thousands or even the huge scary monsters. It was making a small spindly character called Gollum. The precious he makes to murder us! Papa! I'm not sending him away. Come to me. Gollum existed entirely in the computer, with a lot of help from performance capture maestro Andy Serkis, and it proved that big isn't always where the impact is. Though, that said, Wetter isn't afraid to go big when it's needed. For some reason, Weta Digital became the go-to house when it came to big apes. King Kong, of course, the mega ape in the remade Jungle Book, and the Planet of the Apes series. But Weta, like many digital effects houses, also works in supporting roles on projects you wouldn't expect. They contributed to Marvel Comics' Avengers Endgame, as well as the final episodes of Game of Thrones. The digital heavy lifting in the gimmicky thriller Gemini Man, where Will Smith battles with a younger version of himself, was mostly, I believe, once again, Weta. I think I know why he's as good as you. He is you. 25 years ago, they made you from me. They chose me because there's never been anybody like me. They worked on space drama Ad Astra, on DC Comics' Batman vs. Superman and Aquaman, not to mention steampunk space operas like Mortal Engines. But special effects alone don't sell a movie, not anymore. In fact, it's questionable whether they ever did. Who you read me out? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about now. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. The spectacular films of the past, Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, George Lucas's original Star Wars, Steven Spielberg's first Jurassic Park, Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring and James Cameron's Avatar, all succeeded because they were pretty good stories. How many of the current crop of digitally driven films can say the same? You look like a prince on the outside. But I didn't change anything on the inside. Showtime. No, I'm in charge, okay? I say when it's time. 
Really? The jury is out on whether the photo-real animated versions of the old Disney classics bring anything to the party apart from bragging rights. Certainly, films like The Lion King and The Jungle Book look pretty amazing. And the more you look at them, the more amazing they start to look. The digital artists are not just designing the animals, though that's no mean feat. They're also creating the rocks, the sky, every blade of grass, every tree. And they look, as they say, photo-real. I mean, even Norman Rockwell couldn't match this stuff. So, to put me out of my misery, I've invited the one man I know of who can answer my question, how on earth did they do it? Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance. Joe Leteria has been head of Weta Digital virtually from the start. He's written shotgun on films like Jurassic Park and Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, Jungle Book, and his current project, the four sequels to Avatar. And yes, he worked on that too. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming along. You're welcome, Simon. Good to be here. So, look, back in the day, digital effects were sort of seen as sci-fi toys, weren't they? I mean, Star Wars, The Abyss up until Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park was a game-changer because suddenly a digital thing looked like it could breathe. It looked unbelievably real. I mean, you worked on Jurassic Park, didn't you? I I did, yeah. And there was, you know, a a kind of a history to the way that happened because you even mentioned the the abyss. Mm. Jim Cameron wrote that scene, you know, with the the water creature coming out of it, really just to challenge ILM to see if it could be done. And he he thought about that incrementally because then when it came to do Terminator 2, that same idea of being able to take something amorphous and give it shape mm. was the whole basis for, for the T-1000, you know, the, the liquid metal. Um, I joined ILM in the middle of making that film, and our next project was Jurassic Park. And the whole idea was to do it with go motion, you know, uh, animatronics that you photographed in sort of the normal way. Right. Stephen had this idea, though, that would be hard to populate the background dinosaurs with the, a, a lot of these little models. Right. And he gave us a, a shot at saying, well, can you just design dinosaurs we can do in the background? And we sort of took it on. It was Dennis Nieren who was uh, heading up the project at the time. Took it on, and we shot what we call background plate. Went up to Marin County, shot this big you know, open area, and made a Tyrannosaurus skeleton because we didn't have the full Tyrannosaurus at the time, just run through the landscape. And we showed it to Stephen, and he got really excited and said, okay, can you do all the dinosaurs this way? (laughs) And we just said, sure, (laughs) as you do. Um, It's it's a dinosaur. Uh (laughs) You did. You crazy son of a bitch, you did. You see these yeah. brontosauruses, brachiosaurs, I guess, you know, yeah. walking in and out in between trees, walking across real live stuff. And you suddenly realize that you can do so much with digital effects. So after that, what mm-hmm. happened? You know, what, did everyone suddenly say this is the answer or did they say it's still incredibly complicated? It's still incredibly complicated. You know, it, it proceeded incrementally from there. Mm. But I was kind of hooked because for me, that was a, a dream come true. Like I remember sitting in, you know, school in third grade drawing dinosaurs. Right. And it's like to be able to to create those brachiosaurs and those T-Rexes was just, you know, fantastic. But we had a long way to go to be able to do it in in any kind of a sense where 
it was really a, a kind of a common toolkit for directors to use. I mean, Jurassic Park only had about 65 shots of our digital dinosaurs. Mm. You know, we had uh, Stan Winston's animatronic dinosaurs that were mixed in, but there was less than 10 minutes worth of our work in there. But Stephen used it very judiciously. I think a lesson he had learned from Jaws about how to, you know, get the most impact from it. And that took us a year to do. Now we we routinely do, you know, hundreds of thousands of shots for for a film. But it took a while for us to understand the art form enough to be able to make it, you know, both comprehensive enough but also accessible for directors to use. Because most directors coming into these projects a lot of them, it's going to be their first time because there always has to be that that first time. Sure. And, and we try to make it as relatable to the live action filmmaking process as possible. We do everything that you would do in a live action film. And that's that's been our model from the beginning. Every department that you see that on a film set, whether it's a costume department or makeup or greens or cinematography, we have equivalent departments equivalent. within within way the digital. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. before we go into what's happened with digital stuff, which is mm-hmm. it's just ex- exploded, in, you know, incredibly. But let me just go back to that first Jurassic Park experience where you had dinosaur skin. Now. Mm-hmm. There is no dinosaur skin. How did you make that? What did you make it out of? We we wrote uh, uh, software. It's all in the computer. None of it's real. It's all you know digital models. Mm. And the skin we wrote software so that we could have an artist actually paint the skin. And I was interested in something called fractals at the time, which is this kind of essentially a fractional dimensional way of describing natural objects. Right, mm. like a mountain is not a triangle, but you can describe it with fractals. A cloud is not a sphere, but you can describe it with fractals. Now, what's fractals? Fractals are essentially fractional dimensions. You know, you have two dimensions, you have three dimensions. Well, you can actually describe dimensions in between, and that's the geometry that you can use to describe a lot of real-world shapes. Mm. And so I used that idea to create all the fine microstructure in in the skin of the dinosaurs uh, to help give it that level of realism. So we start with, if you like, um, dinosaurs, which is the next step up from rockets and Mm. big, hard things. Mm. And now suddenly we start moving into nature. We start moving into, well, I I mentioned, you know, films like The Jungle Book and and The Lion King, Mm -hmm. where... Everything that you see there, it was a guy in front of a a green screen and everything was put in after that. Mm -hmm. So you're doing the same thing, presumably, there where every surface, everything about that has been constructed in a computer. Well, for us, it started with Avatar because... We had done all this work on Lord of the Rings, and there were bits and pieces of all that. You know, we had characters, we had armies, you know, we had trolls, we had Gollum. We had a lot of that going on. Uh, And I remember that uh, it was actually – we had a a really great night at the Oscars at the end of the third one. And uh, the next day, quite late the next day because we were all sleeping in, (laughs) uh, Jim Cameron invited Peter and me to uh, come and visit him at his studio to check out his new stereo camera because we were interested in stereo. And we talked – about you know the possibility of shooting King Kong stereo, but the the rig wasn't going to be ready yet. But Jim just sort of kept in touch, and John Landau, his producer. So as we were finishing King Kong, uh, about six weeks before we were done, John Landau called me and said, "Jim's got this story he'd like you to read to see if you think it could be done." And I said, "Okay, send it to him." And he said, "What's it called?" And he said, "Avatar." I said, "Okay, sounds good." <laughs> and and he sent it to me, and I read it, and I just thought. 
we have to make this movie because not only was it a fantastic story, but it was a fantastic world. It allowed us to really go to a different planet and create the whole thing. So we embarked on this big research and development campaign to understand how do you, you know, make a planet and everything that goes in it. And for us, that laid the foundation for all the work that's been done, you know, in, in the years since then, in the 12 years or so since then. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. You should see your faces. I was going to ask whether it's easier to make a made-up planet like Pandora in Avatar than it is to make something that people are aware of. I mean, to make, say, the Amazon jungle or to make uh, the Sahara Desert or to make things that people are well aware of and they'll say, well, that's wrong or that's wrong. You know, with you know, with a film like Avatar, there's nothing wrong. You can do whatever you like. Well, you can't actually. And in some ways it's harder because if you are going to do something like, say, put a, a tree next to another tree, hmm. uh, you know, in, in a photographic element, you have everything around you that tells you what it should look like. Hey, this light is too bright. That shadow is the wrong color. You have clues to figure out how to fit it in. If you're starting with a blank slate, it's easy to get off track. Now you right. ask yourself, is this thing too bright? Is that shadow the right color? Because if it doesn't all come together, mm. you're out of the movie. And you may not know why, but things like nature, things like you know facial expressions, as humans, we experience that every day. So yeah. we may not know like if it's right or wrong, but you, you know when it's wrong. And, and that's really, uh, uh, in a way, a harder balance to maintain. When you're uh, making stuff like that, I mean, I keep coming back to The Lion King because that was a perfect case for me of something that I completely disapproved <laughs> of it, the idea of it. You know, I just think getting actual lions to do the acting, yeah, don't do that. You know, do, yeah. do, do, do what they used to do. But it doesn't matter. The fact is that you're looking at this stuff, and I was thinking... Man, that background looks great. Wow, that foreground looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. Do you sample real photos? Do you sample f real footage when you're making these things, or do you start absolutely from scratch? You always start with reality, always. Mm -hmm. And then you replace it or enhance it bit by bit to make it go in the direction that you want. So with a film like Lion King, the whole point was to make it photo real, you know, in, in real nature. So right. yeah, you get a lot of uh, photograph textures of leaves and bark and kind of put that all together. On Avatar, we pushed that a little bit farther. We did all that because there's a, a certain commonality to nature that we thought would always be there. Leaves always be green because you need sunlight and chlorophyll, you know. Um, but we push that by adding these exotic plants that only could grow on, on Pandora, mm -hmm. you know, with, with really rich colors and, and different, you know, unique designs. So you always start with reality, but you always try to push it somewhere to take the audience to a place they've never been before, because to mm -hmm. me, that's a big part of the experience. That's why I like doing these movies. That's why I like watching these movies. Well, clearly, since Jurassic Park, digital effects have basically conquered the world, really, and they, they've conquered the world on such a wide range of levels. I mean, there are TV shows use digital effects all the way through in, you know, ones that you weren't expecting. I mean, I'm not talking about Game of Thrones. I'm talking mm -hmm. about CSI. I'm talking about a cop show where quite often most of the set has kind of been put in later. Mm -hmm. I mean, that astonished me. 
Well, it, it's all still in service of story. I remember when we were working on Jurassic Park because we had worked on it for about a year and we were finishing it up and we had these dinosaurs and we thought, okay, this looks pretty cool. Mm. But you had no idea how it was going to be taken. And uh, Dennis Murin went to, we were in San Francisco at the time, flew to Los Angeles to meet with Steven to see a final you know, assembly of the film. And Dennis came back and we just couldn't wait to ask him. How was it? How was it? And he said, oh, it was pretty good. It's like, okay, then maybe, we'll be, you know, <laughs> then the maybe we're going to be okay. Because if the story's not there, mm. the work doesn't matter. See, this yeah. is the problem, yeah. too, because you get very blasé. I mean, it's got to a stage 10 years ago where just about everyone said, well, you know, they can do anything. So getting the wow factor to return to the filmmaking thing is getting harder and harder, I would think. I mean, do you ever have that worry at all? No, again, because it's all driven on story. There's mm. very little wow without a good story. You know, you go back to that reveal of the brachiosaurs in in uh, Jurassic Park. Sure. It was all about, hey, we think he's doing something, it might be over here, suddenly it's right in front of your face. Like right. the, the way Stephen revealed that moment was was brilliant, yeah. as was the way Sam Neill played it, you know, with the taking off the glasses. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I, was, I, was, I was finding it interesting comparing and contrasting Lord of the Rings with uh, The Hobbit. Now, The Hobbit was a lot more digital. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot less going out onto actual locations and things. Mm-hmm. And I thought it suffered a bit from it. You know, I think that there's, a, there's nothing different. It looks exactly the same. But you're sort of aware that maybe it's the uncanny valley thing. Maybe it's that whole business about you don't know why you think it's just not quite true, but it felt a bit like that. I mean, what, what did you think? Well, the locations we needed, especially for the final battle, just didn't exist. Right. You know, that, that big plane, the way, you know, that everything was structured in the, the mountains mountain for the charge. Exactly. Thing, you know. It just didn't exist, so we made it out of, uh, out of pieces. Pretty much all of them photographed around New Zealand and then, mm. and then modified. But that's, again, that's just in service of the story. If that's, that's what you need to do. I, I remember actually even on Lord of the Rings, we were trying to figure out what do the mountains of Mordor look like. Turns out they look a lot like the Remarkables. <laughs> <laughs> you know? This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness, through war, has led to this road. These days, any big blockbuster, you have to wade your way through an awful lot of credits at the end. Well, it's it's the fact that you they are big projects. You have to have a lot of people on them to get them done in the time, as you mentioned. Mm. There's also just quite a lot of work that, that goes into it. And so we try to give as many people as we possibly can credit who are responsible in, in some way for, for the work. I notice also that sometimes a lot of these firms specialize in certain... Things. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know whether, you know, you can talk about that, but I mean, mm-hmm. is there a firm, for example, that you would go to for fur or a. Uh, water or vegetation or something like that. For all those things, I would come to us at What a Digital because we, we try to do it all and we try to do it all well. But we do have a specialty, which is characters. Uh, that's something ever since working on Jurassic Park, I just started seeing the power of characters. Because when I got into this business, I thought it was going to be about you know, explosions and rocket ships. Mm. But seeing what you could do with these creatures, with these dinosaurs, I thought was really powerful. They become part of the story, not just dressing in the story. And I've really just been interested in that ever since, which is why the opportunity to work on Gollum here on Lord of the Rings for me was just 
outstanding. I just jumped on that. And because creating a character like that that was so central to the story, you learn so much, but it helps to bring the story alive. He was a great character in the book, and I wanted to see what we could do with him on screen. Not. Never. Smeagol hates nasty horses. Smeagol wants to see them. Dead. And we will. Smeagol did it once. He can do it again. And that's something that we've carried on with ever since, with King Kong, with Avatar, with the Planet of the Apes films. That's just been our, our specialty, is to work on characters, because they are so much at the heart of the film. I mentioned uh, the Uncanny Valley thing before, but in fact, you're talking about characters and all of the characters that you've mentioned, and I think most of the characters that I think of when I think of digital effect characters are sort of fantasy characters. They're sort of ex exaggerated or they're, they're not ordinary. They're not Tom Hanks, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. And every time you try and get a Tom Hanks character, it always looks creepy. Maybe not every time. <laughs> we, we might have slipped a few in there that you didn't know about. Maybe so. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, that happens quite a lot these days. Yeah. How different is what you do to what they do at Pixar? I mean, it's, is it exactly the same process, but going for different effects? Or? Uh, um, a lot of the tools are, in fact, the same. But Pixar... The difference really, again, is character. Like, you'll start to see Pixar movies going more and more photo real with things like, you know, backgrounds and environments. Right. But their characters are very gestural. They're meant to be animated characters. Right. They're meant to convey emotion in a different way, as, as with classical animation. When we animate a character, we might be using a, a lot of performance capture. We might be working mm -hmm. directly with the actors because our goal is to produce that realism that you get from an actor being in the scene. We just want to embody that character in something unique to get you to look at what you're seeing in maybe a, a new way, right? Like if you go back to the first uh, you know, Planet of the Apes film with Caesar, that was a coming-of-age story, right? It's about a kid who finds out that he's really not part of the family he grew up in and has to go off and find his own way. That story's been told many times before. How do you get people to look at it in a new way? Make him an ape. <laughs> and what about Caesar? Where does he fit in? That ship's company property. He hasn't spent any time with other chimps. You look at these ideas as ways to try to engage audiences, not just to, you know, wow them. Like the wow factor is nice, but you hope that once you have that, they stay with the story. With the humanity. Absolutely. Because they're all costumes in a way. They are. They're, it's an ape. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a Navi. It's whatever it might be. They're still actors performing these roles. We're just trying to bring them out in different ways. Finally, you're working on um, Avatar. Uh, I understand there are four sequels now. I thought there were three, but... There, he's, he's the original idea was there would be three. Jim has a lot of stories, so there's four. <laughs> <laughs> he's been thinking out of the way around. He has, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how are you working this? I mean, are you doing them one at a time, or are you doing them 
in a sort of a more global sort of way? Well, we're kind of working right now mostly on two and three, and then we'll do four and five. I mean, you, you kind of have to take them in chunks because you do have to make the release dates. So we have uh, film two coming out in December of 21 and film three coming out in December of 23, so two years after that. But, the you know, a lot of the live action we've been shooting here in, in Wellington and uh, up in Auckland, and we're already well into, you know, our end on the production. I've been talking with Joe Letteri, head of Weta Digital. And you probably noticed Joe retains the enthusiasm and curiosity he had when he was figuring out dinosaurs all those years ago. There's a reason why he and Weta are still top of the business. Well, that brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.